Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Burnkelia gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. That's right. It's the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. My special co-host today is Leah, back after her wonderful performance on our Jurassic Park episode. If you have not listened to our Jurassic Park episode, go check it out. Anyway, she's here again today to discuss with me Enola Holmes. But first, a few quick notes. One, remember, we have a webpage over at kmmamedia.com where you can find show notes and links and all sorts of cool stuff, including two ways that you can support us. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and all the podcast platforms. You can share our posts on social media, aka Facebook. You can invite your friends to listen. And with over 40 episodes in our back catalog, I'm sure there is a book and movie combo for everyone. Another big way you can support us is through Patreon. Your $1 or $5 a month donation helps keep me able to afford the website, the domains, and all the things that go into making this show, like the new headset that I had to get when Podcast Cat destroyed my first one. Remember, our Patreons get perks like early release of episodes and supplemental episodes and coupon codes for our store. Yep, we have a store. So check it out all at kmmamedia.com. And thank you to everyone who has supported us over the last two years. For reals, we could not have done it without you. So thank you. One last thing, if you want to get in touch with us and you don't do the Facebook thing, feel free to reach out to me at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And now, on with the episode. Hi, Leah. Hi. <laughs> okay. Today we will be discussing Enola Holmes. Enola Holmes is a 2020 mystery film based on the first book in the young adult fiction series of the same name by Nancy Springer. The story is about the teenage sister of the already famous Sherlock Holmes who goes to London in search of her mother who has disappeared. The film is directed by Harry Bradbeer. From a screenplay by Jack Thorne, Millie Bobby Brown stars as the title character while also serving as a producer on the film. Henry Cavill, Sam Clayfin, Adel Akhtar, Fiona Shaw, Francis Delator, Louis Partridge, Susan Wokoma, and Helena Bottom Carter appear in supporting roles. By the way, there are six books in this series. The last one came out in 2010, so I don't think there's going to be any new ones. And here we go. Here is my book recap for book one, The Case of the Missing Marquess. I always thought it was pronounced Marquis. That's the French version, I think. Ah, so and English it's spelled people... slightly different. It's spelled with like an I or something. Right. Okay. I think it was from Phantom of the Opera that I got Marquis or maybe Marquis de Sotte whatever, like mm -hmm. peek into my life. Um, so we'll call him Marcus unless I mess up and call him Marquis. 
<laughs> we shall see. When Enola's mother disappears on Enola's 14th birthday, Enola is frightened and understandably upset. At first, no one misses mom because she has been prone to go out walking and sketching alone over the family estate. This is England in the late 1880s, so things like estates, halls, caste systems, they're very much a thing. This then is the story of a girl in an upper level of the aristocracy who's been raised by her widowed mother pretty much alone and isolated. Her father had died when she was four, her elder brothers, Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes, have been away pretty much since then, and Enola thinks of herself as her family's shame for being born so late in her mother's life. So exposition aside, Enola is sad and worried about her mother's disappearance and alerts the constable as well as her older brothers, Sherlock and Mycroft. They telegram that they are coming to the hall, meet at the station. So Enola rides her bicycle to the station to meet them. But it gads, they meant for her to send the carriage. What? There's no carriage? Turns out that mom had been swindling Mycroft out of money for years. Lots of money, it sounds like, telling him that she paid a whole host of non-existent servants and teachers for Enola. The brothers are upset to learn the truth. There's no servants. The grounds are in disrepair. Enola has had no formal training on how to be a proper young lady. Case in point, she's not even dressed as it's proper. Where's her corset? Where's her bustle? Where's her fringe? Egads! Of course, they can't actually talk about such intimate things. Oh, no, no, no. Such conversations would be highly improper. Well, no matter. They are on the case. It seems that mom has left on her own accord. No kidnapping signs. Also, Enola cleverly deduces that her mother snuck money and baggage out by hiding things in her ridiculously fancy lady clothes. The brothers aren't pleased, and they immediately hire a seamstress to deal with the travesty of Enola's appearance and start making plans to send her off to boarding school. There is a lot of discussion about the crazy clothing restraints that Enola is now forced to endure, including the whole corset thing and how her waist should only be 18 inches, ideally, so the dressmaker makes dresses that go down in size to accommodate her shrinking figure. Egads, I say again, egads. Enola is horrified by all this, but Mycroft tells her that he is the ruler of the roost, so to speak, and she has no choice. She pretty much belongs to him, as her mother did before her, because, you know, the patriarchal system in England is really fucked up. Enola realizes why her mother swindled him. Enola also figures out that her mother left her money hidden in her room behind her watercolors of flowers. Enola puts her own plan into action. On the day she is meant to be sent to boarding school, she instead hides her own luggage and money in her clothing and manages to run away. She bikes off across the countryside and disguises herself as a widow. Her plan is to get to any town, then take the train to London and look for her mother and stay hidden from her brothers. Her plan is good, but the town or village or whatever she comes to is all in a tizzy because the local Visconte, a 12-year-old boy, has been kidnapped. She reads about it in the paper and can't help but go to the house and look around. She accidentally gives her real name, but no matter, she is on the case. She somehow knows the boy wasn't kidnapped and intuits his hidey spot in a tree complete with pictures of boats and his cut off long hair she feels bad for the mother and meets the spiritualist lady who's all big and brassy and well totally a con artist but this magic charlatan has given arenola the idea that she could be a professional finder of things once she gets to london which okay we will talk about this Anyways, while trying to leave the estate, she runs across Inspector Lestrade, who is working on the case for Sherlock about the disappearance of the young Viscount. That's how you say it, right? Viscount. Viscount. Sorry. There's an S, but it's we don't say it. That That's another French word that uh, they decided to actually keep this time. Vicomte de Chagny. Okay. Again, going back to my fan of the opera knowledge. <laughs> Lestrade, who's working on a case with Sherlock about the disappearance of the young Viscount. The young Viscount's name is Lord Tewksbury. I'm going to call him Took, And I wrote twink in my notes, but I'm going to call him Took. <laughs> okay. She distracts Lestrade from trying to figure out who she is by giving him the lock of hair that she took from Took's hidey house and tells him to search the docks in London, etc. The spiritualist lady is nearby and overhears. 
Anyway, Enola is finally on the train and headed to London. A friendly, busybody lady on the train tells her about the East End where the degenerates live and about thrift stores where she can sell her petticoats if she's ever in dire straits. You see, there is some dude on the train following Enola, but she doesn't have too much time to dwell on it because they arrive and it's London, baby. Oh, but it is not really what she expected. Off she goes to the East End and it's pretty soon it's dark and then she's very, very bad part of the East End and then BAM! Next thing you know, some guy has grabbed her. He's threatening her with a knife. He wants her to tell him about Took. But what? 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 She doesn't know where Took is. She fights back. She escapes thanks to his knife not being able to penetrate her corset. And a friendly other guy is there to help her, but oh no, this dude is in on it too. And he hits her over the head. She wakes up in a boat all tied up and look, hey, there's Took. Okay, it turns out that he did run away, but then he got kidnapped here at the docks by Big Baldy and his sidekick Squeak. They also want her because her last name is, you know, Holmes. Both she and Toot commiserate a bit about how London was not really what they expected. They are both horrified by the plight of the poor. Thankfully, the tear in her dress and her sharp corset holder thingies make it so that Enola can cut herself free and she beams Squeaky over the head with a rock or some other random thing that she finds in the bottom of the boat, and then she and Took flee, hotly pursued by Big Baldy. They run and take refuge in a thrift shop. Oh yes, it was Chekhov's lady on the train, to be sure, and Enola pays the lady and the neighbors off not to tell Big Baldy, who's actually named Cutter, and Squeaky where they are. The next day, now disguised as just a normal young lady, lower to middle class, and with new clothes for Took too, they set off to the nicer parts of London. They read in the paper that a ransom has been demanded for Took and that the spiritualist lady is encouraging the family to pay it. Egads! Enola has put it all together. The spiritual lady is Big Baldy, Cutter. He overheard her tell Lestrade about where Took would be and then he wired Squeaky to find and kidnap him. Took is sad about his mother being sad and so he agrees to turn himself in. Off they go to Scotland Yard. While waiting their turn to see someone, who should show up but Sherlock and Lestrade, having what seems like a very private conversation in a very public place. Whatever. Sherlock is, yeah, it is really embarrassing that as awesome as I am, I cannot find my mom or my sister. But couldn't you stop laughing at me long enough to help? And Lestrade is like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> but maybe you could help find the damn Viscount Took. And Sherlock is like, no, my mom made her own bed. I don't care. But Enola's out there somewhere and she isn't super bright. We have to find her. She's a young woman alone in London. Lestrade is like, yeah, well, Took is even younger and also alone and kidnapped. And then Took decides to be like, hey, you guys, are you talking about me? And Enola nopes her little self right out of the police station by way of a nearby window. And it's totally great. Okay, the book kind of ends there. <laughs> it ends with Enola sending a coded message via the personal columns to her mother, who responds, also in code, that she's gone off to live with the Romani. Yeah, the book says the other word, but it's not a very PC word. And, um, uh, you know, I know that they wrote it that way to keep the spirits of the times, but whatever, we're in 2020, so I'm going to say Romani. The epilogue reveals that Enola has taken on two new disguises or personas. To the poor, she is the mute sister who shows up in the bad parts of the East End and helps people with food and blankets, etc. To the rich, she is Ivy, the secretary to a private investigator. Ooh, what shenanigans is she up to? It appears that she's biding her time by keeping busy and waiting for the weather to be nice so that she can go off and look for her mother. In the meantime, she is going to pass herself off as the secretary of an investigator or something. We don't know. It's to be continued. Movie recap. Warning. The movie starts the same and then goes off in a whole different direction. The exposition is cute. She breaks the fourth wall. We get lots of flashbacks. Hello, this is Enola. She is quirky and adorable. She is 16. She's on a bike, telling us her life story. Through flashbacks, animated, very, very cute, we learn more about her mom. Lots of mom stuff. Mom has been preparing her and having fun with her, bucking the expectations of her station, etc. And then mom left in the night. 
The relationship between Enola and her mom seems very close. Uh, the secret meeting with other women notwithstanding, apparently her mother was up to something with other feminists. Back in the present day, Enola has arrived at the station to meet her brothers to get their help in finding her mom, who's been missing for a week. Same as the book, they meant the carriage. Nut, no carriage? Sherlock is a little less anti-woman than in the book, but it is still a little bit there, and he is slightly amused by Enola. He is a little bit taken with her. Mycroft has a stick up his ass. The brothers go through mom's stuff. Sherlock notices the flowers. They deduce that she ran away on her own volition. The brothers discuss. Mycroft maintains that he's not the villain. He's just pretty steamed about the embezzlement by mom and all of the money that she stole. They plan to get Enola ready for boarding school. Mycroft will handle that. Sherlock is to find mom. Sherlock, by the way, is on Enola's side, but she is Mycroft's responsibility, not his, and so... Enter Miss Harrison to break her and build her. This is a montage of body shaming. The clothes will free you for polite society bullshit and yeah, some physical abuse. Miss Harrison has a finishing school. Also, Miss Harrison seems to have a crush on Mycroft. Enola begs her brothers to not force her to get ready for marriage. Sherlock's sympathetic, but again, his hands are tied. Poor man. Sherlock and Enola bond over sketching, memories of her childhood, and her pet pinecone named Dash. It's very sweet. Okay, time for Enola to cipher her mother's birthday gifts to her and find out that she has indeed been left money. So Enola disguises herself as a young boy with some of Sherlock's old clothes and runs off to the train station. The train almost doesn't leave because there's a family there looking for a boy who might very well be on the train. Apparently, Enola has no trouble pretending to be a boy, by the way. She overhears this family. They're all upset because of their missing Marquis. Marquess. Sorry. I'm going to just be French here. And upset about their missing boy, who is a Marquis. I, you know what? If I'm going to say Vicomte, I'm going to say Marquis. I've just decided. That's what I'm doing. She overhears the family. They're all in an upset about the missing Marquis. She happens to sit in a train compartment with a very big carpet bag. Inside that bag, the missing boy, the Vicomte Tux. This boy can tell that she is not a boy right away, by the way, and he thinks he's safe and free. She isn't taking any of his shit. She tells him about a man in a bowler hat that she saw in the station who's probably looking for him, and then she leaves him to his fate. But she can't help herself. She returns to him, and the man in the bowler hat is trying to kill him by tossing him off the train. Enola rescues the young Viscount, who it should be stated is around her age, but also aged up a bit, and then they run. But there isn't very many places to run or hide on the train. They climb out of the sides, and yes, there's a bridge, and they jump right before it, and bowler hat man is thwarted. Tuke is prissy. Enola tells him her name and asks for thanks for saving him, but he is a doofus. He's a dweeb. Her fourth wall break look of disgust is great. Turns out Tuke knows about edible flowers and mushrooms, so Enola makes a fire, somehow, and they eat. They bond over parents and reasons to run away, and an uneasy alliance is formed. She cuts his hair. In London, well, the outskirts of London, they agree to go their separate ways. She is a bit overwhelmed by the hustle and bustle, and her voiceover is kind of cute. The brothers again. Sherlock is looking for both mother and sister. Mycroft is pissed. He wants Sherlock to focus on mother. He has a bone to pick up with her about the money. Mycroft is definitely being painted the villain. He is the stand-in for the old world conservatives and values. There's a vote, by the way, coming up in the House of Lords. He is horrified. They might pass a bill that would open the vote for more people. He doesn't want more people voting. No one needs more uneducated voters. Yikes. Enola buys herself some new clothes, and the shopkeeper recommends a hovel nearby. Enola settles in to send a cipher to her mother in multiple periodicals. She then goes to an address she had memorized from her mother's correspondence and finds a woman's dojo. As soon as she says her mother's name, she is recognized. Dojo Queen Edith knows her and knows her mom. Your mom has always hidden all her life. If she wants to be hidden, she will be. And she has work to do, but she won't tell Enola what kind of work. 
She does tell Enola that she needs to be tough to stay in London for herself and not for her mother, which is a weird thing to say to a child. Whatever. Then she leaves the room and Enola goes through her stuff. She sees a thing with a familiar symbol and has flashbacks to that secret meeting that she almost walked in on and the codes her mother was always speaking in. And then she does some cool anagram magic in her head. And now she has a place to start her search. She's at the docks now. She notices a purple ribbon on a door and lets herself into a place. She finds a science kit like the one she played with with her mom, and then a flyer for women's suffrages, and then gunpowder, and then papers about civil disobedience. Hey, look, explosives! She's a little afraid. She leaves the den of feminine plotting. She's grabbed and waterboarded by Bowler Hat Man. He wants the marquee. He tries to drown her, but she fakes him out, headbutts him, and runs. Flashback to mom, who taught her history, physics, and hand-to-hand combat! Enola and Bowler Hat Man fight in the street. She does okay, but he still gets her on the ropes. Eventually, back in the den of women's lib, and then he gets out his knife, and he stabs her! But her whalebone corset saves her, and then she sets off some explosives, and she makes her escape. At home in her hovel, she ruminates on her mother's admonitions to let nature take its course, but she does feel responsible for the Viscount. She decides to look for Tewksbury. Now she's disguised as a widow and back at Tewksbury's home. She meets with his mother. She presents herself as a lady detective. They aren't really buying it. She's about to get booted when she names drops Sherlock Holmes. Oh yes, well Lestrade is there. They have a whole pissing contest about who knows Sherlock better, but Mother Tewksbury puts her foot down and off they go. But Enola hits up a groundkeeper boy for info and his clothes. She is on the case. Back in London, Sherlock is at the dojo tea room and threatens the queen herself with government involvement unless she talks. She tells him a bit of info about Enola, like Enola is in London, but then calls him out on his privilege. Politics bore you because you have no interest in changing a world that suits you so well. I told you, she's the queen. Across town, Mycroft and Lestrade meet up. Lestrade is trying to figure out who the widow was. Mycroft is trying to get more info than he's sharing, but he sucks. So he slips up and Lestrade now knows that it's Enola. And Mycroft promises him a big reward if he finds her. Enola, by the way, has found Tewksbury's treehouse. She's poking through his stuff when the Dowager shows up. The family already knows about the treehouse. The Dowager, aka Grandmother, likes her. It's a very unflattering angle of their butts as they walk, but then Enola gets a lecture about the old ways. Then the Dowager sends Enola on her way back to London. She goes to Covent Gardens where she meets Tewksbury. They flirt. She tells him his life is in danger. He goes back to her hovel. He gently mocks her for believing that this is a good place. He asks about the newspapers. She's still waiting for a message from her mother. They bond a little bit. There's more flirting, even though she is a little resistant. She tells him that she thinks his family is who wants him dead, not found. Also, they had his father killed. And that branch that fell on him a while back? Not an accident. She's telling all of this, and there is a man in the room. Oh, no. But Enola knows it, and she hits the man in the head with the teapot, and they flee. The man somehow is not... I don't know, unconscious. And so it's Lestrade. He's going to break down the door. Someone must stay and hold it closed. She tells Tewksbury to go. His life is in more danger than hers. He doesn't want to leave her, but he does. Lestrade gets in. Enola has been caught. Mycroft and Enola have a tense conversation. He's all patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. And she cries and is sad and it's frustrating. He loses it. He yells at her. It's very uncomfortable for me, the viewer who hates men yelling at women. And then he takes all of her money. And he takes her to Miss Henderson's finishing school. And she's sent to bed without supper and given a uniform. Boo on uniforms. Montage of finishing school. How do we laugh? Politely. You will walk as we show you, speak as we tell you, and think as we tell you to think so that you will be acceptable wives and responsible mothers. Enola buckles under this and rebels a bit. And then there's the scene with Miss Harrison where she's like, I'm preparing you for the real world. I won't abandon you like your mother, which is both nice and mean at the same time. Like I kind of get Miss Harrison, but whatever. Enola is pretty much hates her. 
Turns out Miss Harrison was friends with mom and sees mom's abandonment as the worst sin. Again, she kind of has a point. Sherlock comes to visit. He has a paper. She looks for a message from her mother. He hasn't found mom yet, but he has been hot on her trail. He has seen the gunpowder, etc. They quarrel, and then he admits that he cares about her, but then, because feelings are dangerous and wrong, they talk about the Tewksbury case. He gives her advice from one detective to another that sometimes you must dangle your feet in the water to catch sharks. He also brings her a token from her childhood, the pine cone named Dash. This improves her spirits. After Sherlock leaves, a big-ass hamper is delivered to Yanola, and it's Tewksbury, because this boy really likes to hide in containers. He's here to bust her out. Anola breaks the fourth wall again and again and again. He drags the hamper out with Anola inside. Caught by Miss Harrison, he buys just enough time for Anola to escape, and Anola has left behind a sketch of Miss Harrison and Mycroft. The two runaways steal Harrison's motor car thing, and then off they go. On the road, Anola puts it all together. See, it's Tewksbury's uncle who must have the murder boner. He killed his brother, tried to kill the young Viscount in order to A, get the lordship title and lands and whatnot, and B, be able to vote against reforms in the upcoming vote. Remember that Tewks and his dad were more liberal than the rest of the family. She uses the dangle the feet line, and he is like, but why would we want to attract sharks? Well, she doesn't have an answer for that. But at the Lordship's house, she gives an impassioned speech about how this is what she was made for. So off they go. They sneak into the manor house. They start poking about. The house is like eerily deserted. There's no servants. No one is there. Enola figures that evil uncle must know that they're there. And then someone is shooting at them. And then lots of art is getting destroyed. It's Bowler Hat Man. He has a gun. It's Enola with a diversion. And then it's round two, hand to hand between Bowler and Enola. And just when he's winning, Tooks joins the fray, but he's easily dispatched. Now Bowler is strangling Tooks, and Enola must pull herself off the floor to save him. But she's so weak. And then her mother is whispering from memory. And this gives her the power to fight. And she knocks him down and he hits his head pretty hard. They have this upper hand. Enola's like, Who do you work for? Who do you work for? And Bowler Hat is like, England. And then he dies because I guess it was a really bad hit on the head. In comes the dowager grandma, who's also, oh my God, a bad guy. She picks up the gun. It was her all the time. Ah! She babbles about the future of the country and then shoots Tooks in the chest. Enola runs at her. The gun is out of bullets. Enola takes away the empty gun and then weeps over Tooks's body. And then, just like entangled, her tears are magic and he wakes up. Okay, not really, but he does wake up because apparently he watched Back to the Future and he's wearing a bit of handy dandy armor under his shirt, so he was bulletproof. Hooray! They hug, but no time for celebration. Now Tooks faces off with Granny. Your time is over, he tells her. She looks resigned. The scene ends. It's London! Sherlock goes to Lestrade's office. He's like, yo, I solved the Tewksbury case. It's the grandma. Lestrade is like, oh, how did you figure that out? Sherlock does his typical, it's obvious because of this totally random and not super obvious thing. But Lestrade is like, I'm not impressed. My second question, how did your sister figure this out before you? <laughs> Even Sherlock is amused by this. He's not bitter. He's amused, which is nice. At the House of Lords, Took is about to go in and vote, and Enola has arrived to give him crap and flirt with him. Her hair is all down. She's not at all dressed properly, but okay, I guess she's fine with being scandalous. She's got the reward money from Took's family, and she's moved somewhere nicer, she tells him. He's like, hey, you could always, like, stay with me. Eyebrow wiggle. But Enola isn't going for it. She's going for his hand. And then they touch fingers. Scandal! He kisses her fingers, and she quivers. There is no other way to put it. They off they go on their separate ways. And there in the paper is a message from her mother. Meet me, Royal Academy, five tonight, mother. 
uh, no way, man. She sees through this. This is totally Sherlock, not her mom. She buys the clothes off of a newsboy and at the Academy, the brothers are waiting. Sherlock figures that she would figure that it was his message, but they're still hopeful she'll show up anyways. Sherlock is like, if we do find her, I want her as my ward. Mycroft agrees because he is grumpy because as we suspected, Tooks voted with the liberals. The bill passed and Mycroft is just like over all of this. So they go to have a drink because that's how we cope. And on the way, Sherlock finds little pinecone dash on a statue so he knows that Enola was there. Enola returns to her rented rooms and there in her room is her mom. The reunion is tense. Mom apologizes, although for what I'm not sure, she left because she loves Enola. She wants to make the world better for her. Enola buys this because she is desperate for love. They hug. Mom is like, well, we can communicate via secret coded messages, so let's hug, but then I gotta go. Grr. Enola wraps up the movie with a benediction. She's cool with her mom leaving her. She's a detective. She's just fine on her own. Thank you very much. She's alone, but she's not lonely. Her life is her own, she says, before she bikes off into the London streets with her hair all down and not dressed at all like a lady. The end. That's a pretty good recap. Thank you. <laughs> sometimes I just copy the Wikipedia and add flair. And sometimes I write the whole goddamn thing myself. <laughs> <laughs> this is, a, I think, a good one to review because they're very different. Mm-hmm. The, the book and the movie. They have these sort of slight tie-ins but they take drastically different paths in their their plots fairly early on there it's almost like reviewing two different continuities in a comic book yeah you know regular batman versus the dark knight kind of they're very they're that different that's a really good way to put it i having not read book two three four or five or six of the series i don't know if any of this that's in the movie is reflected later. Like obviously the Tewksbury thing, no, because that storyline gets very much wrapped up in the book. Mm -hmm. But the thing with her mom showing up and also being like, but then like in the book, her mom was off living with the Romani. So probably not. It is just very, very different, which I will tell you at the end of reading the book, I went ahead and ordered all the rest of the books in this series. Oh, good. (laughs) Just to, just to telegraph how I felt. Um, So (laughs) Yes. But at the end of the movie, I was like, God, I hope they don't make any more of these. <laughs> I'm actually really glad you feel that way because I'm the opposite. <laughs> so oh, this will cool. go for a really good review. Yes. Yes. It's good when we don't agree. That's true. It is. It, is. it makes me remember our first our first project we did back in college, arguing different sides of, of the taming of the shrew. Of the shrew. So yes. it's good. In, in Renaissance outfits and very politely. Yes, very politely. It was very theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were awesome nerds in college. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, yep. So true. Okay, so, okay, so let's talk about the book. Um, we can talk about the book, talk about the movie and then talk about the differences between, but so my, my notes on the book, I'm going to go back and forth. I'll tell you my first note is I love the subversion of using the trappings of femininity as a means of escape. Both her mother did it and she did it. And I liked that. Mm -hmm. That was a thing that I liked. I did. I did like elements of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I will say the book, the book girl, Anola sort of annoyed me a bit. I felt like, I know. I think the big difference was in, in the movie, she was loved. And in the book, yes. she genuinely really wasn't. She was very neglected. Um, I think that the book actually did a good job touching on the melancholia, 
which is our, you know, the, what they called depression, basically, back in the day, and how that ran through their family. So her mother was very detached from her, probably also a level of grief with their father's death, a frustration with her position in society, all of that. But she was very neglectful, right? The movie was her mom taught her all this stuff intentionally, and she had a good grounding which is also a good representation of, I think, the Sherlock Holmes mythos, because Sherlock wasn't just very smart, he was very well educated. So they brought that in for Enola, too, that she had that grounding of being very well educated in the movie. The book, no. So there's lots of stuff that she just was unprepared for, didn't know how to do. She was running by the, you know, the seat of her pants. My plan was to have no plan. (laughs) I actually... I liked that because in the movie, I felt like she was a little bit of a Mary Sue. Like she just was able to do everything mm-hmm. and she didn't struggle that much. In the book, I liked that she was bright, but she hadn't really been given a lot of the tools. And I, I with you, I really, you know, the mother situation was so vastly different. It was so sad. But in the book, she she's very naive, but she's a quick study. And mm-hmm. so I liked it. Like, she's like, okay, I'm going to go to London. She gets to London. She goes to the East End where she knows like, it'll be like a, the, a not the greatest part of town because that's where her brothers won't be and blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, where's all the opera and the carriages and the fine clothes. And it's like, well, duh, girl, like you went to the bad part of town. But like, she doesn't like connect that because she's freaking 14 and super sheltered. Right. So like, that was a big difference. In the movie, she was 16 and she was much more worldly and much more educated. Mm-hmm. But that made me have more sympathy for the 14-year-old. For 14-year-old her. Annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can see that. And I and I confess that a large part of my frustration with the book is the writing. I just felt the mm-hmm. writing was very bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's very American, isn't it? It it's Oh, oh my goodness. Just these lines that she says, I had to read some of them to my mom because they were so bad. And, and there's information that's just unnecessary to drop. So, okay. I read actually a fair bit amount in the crossover genres here. I read a lot of young adult novels and I read a lot of historical novels so this is sort of that that intersection of the two young adult historical fiction and there's a way to do historical fiction that places you effectively in the time period without info dumping on you for no reason so we have lines like this where she's talking about her bicycle right all you would need to say is that she got on her bicycle but there's this line this was not some old high-wheeled bone shaker, but an up-to-date dwarf bicycle with pneumatic tires, perfectly safe. And I'm like, why is that necessary, book? That was a completely, but the thing about the book that frustrates me so much is it's filled with that, filled with those kinds of lines. And it takes you 50% through the entire book just to get to the Tewksbury storyline. And this is a book that's titled The Case of the Missing Marquis. <laughs> and we don't even know about the missing Marquis until literally 50% through the book. 
like almost to the exact page. I will give you that because this book seemed weirdly titled. I was also like, is her mom a Marquis? Because she's the one who's missing, but nobody's calling her. I don't think women can be Marquis. I think that that's like a, I think you're a different thing if you're a woman. So like, yeah, no, I'm with you. I and and there's these these descriptions like the painting, right? Her mom hi- hid one of the one of the packets of money that she gave to Anola that she hid for Anola because there were many in mm-hmm. the book. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a single cipher. It, her mom was paranoid and left them all over the house for her to find and the garden in some cases. There's this long description of what a framed picture looks like that would have been. That is completely unnecessary again. All you would have had to say was she took the picture off the wall and ripped the paper off the back. But she describes in detail that her mother first put the frame down and then carefully put the glass down, very clean, then the 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 matting and then the picture and then the, the nails that the, puts the little finishing nails in it and then and then prettily um puts this brown paper over the back of it i'm like has no one ever seen a picture before are they (laughs) like well okay i will i will quibble with you on that one because i feel like this is geared towards what 11 year old girls it is it is geared towards who maybe have never framed a picture and might need that and it was also published in the late 2000s where let's be honest people aren't putting pictures on the walls the same way now people use mixed tiles or print it on their printer and use a i mean you know what i mean yeah. i'm just saying so like that to me it 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 was a little unnecessary but it didn't take me out it just what that told me was that Enola paid a lot of attention to whatever her mother did because she was so desperate for love. So even her mother framing a picture, Enola's going to remember every single fucking step. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's fair. However, it's very tedious to read Yeah, from a reading perspective. And I think younger me would have found it tedious too, having read a lot in the genre. Mm -hmm. But like, it's not just that. It's also stuff like the snoring bit with Mycroft was so done. It's so done. There's that. So there's the scene where she sneaks out of her bedroom at 2 a.m. to go to find the picture um, and, and what her mother left for her. And she sneaks down the hallway and Mycroft's room is right across from her mom's room and he's snoring and she clicks the lock open and clicks the, the handle and starts opening the door and he, and he stops snoring. And you're like, <gasps> and then he starts up again and there's relief and she enters the room. And I'm like, no, really? That made it past the editor? That made it past the proofreaders? Everyone approved of this scene? Everyone? It's so overdone. Like just so, it's so done, and it, it it's painful. I felt like Jack Thorne, the screenwriter, took every bit of the book that I found tedious and annoying, excised it, and rewrote it in a way that was not <laughs> annoying for me. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, so I guess my level is just my like expectation bar is lower, and I'm like, of course that's cliche. But this book is cliche. Like the whole thing, the whole thing is, is cliche. And I don't mind a little bit of cliche, like, because it's like, it's like a safe level of tension. Like, obviously, either she's going to get in the room or not, probably going to get in the room. So it's manufactured tension just so there's like this little bit of moment. And I feel like 
it needs those little bits so that when we get to bigger, more, like we've laid it in, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just because I will say, and there are things I enjoyed a lot about the movie, but I did not enjoy the sudden turn of violence towards the end because mm. the whole movie was like, this da, 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 da. and then like even the guy like trying to drop the Tewksbury off the train it was a little cartoonish but then when he fucking tries to drown her I was like mm -hmm. whoa we have gone up a level and they're and then and then they're scrappy fighting and it's it's cartoonish again you're kind of like okay but then at the very like people are freaking getting shot and it's a little scary I mean I was just like wow so the tone didn't seem to run throughout where the tone of the, sure. the of the tension in the book stayed at this very low level tension that's that's interesting to me because i felt when she got to london in the book that things took a really sharp dark turn there like mm. she would i mean the description of the old beggar women in that's the true. street very that graphic scarring like yeah. graphic you know, very detailed so let me just um go back you're right a second. i will i'll agree with you yes. yeah. <laughs> go go back a second to the beginning of the book because in fairness a chunk of why i was turned off with this was the way it starts agreed i do not like the beginning the, the intro was weird i remember thinking from the very first sentence oh no it's going to be in present tense it's going to be in third person present tense which is just the hardest most awful way to write a book and I was very turned off by it but it's only three pages long the introduction and then at the end it again goes back yeah. into this third person present tense and it was just very it was very jarring I don't think the author's used to writing in present tense most people are not used to writing in present tense most people aren't used to speaking in present tense because when we tell stories to each other we're telling what happened you know yesterday i went to lunch with my brother and he said blah 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 right so so reading it is a little jarring it's supposed to put you in the person's in the exact moment right that's why we write that that way when we on the rare occasions we choose to do it and almost every editor will recommend against it because it's very hard to do and i just don't think this was a very well done version of that but it starts out with a dark tone i don't know was this supposed to be enola at the beginning i think it was i think it was too and i i super 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 agree with you i did not like that the beginning and the end it felt like a weird framing divide well not even that but it, okay here's the thing a prologue is supposed to either give you valuable information or titillate you so you start yes. reading like there's a reason for a pro but not every book needs a prologue and just putting a prologue in there to make your book longer yeah. which is what i think is what this is um <laughs> it's three whole pages longer very but, successful i mean but it's just you know what i mean like maybe there was a word count thing i don't know right? but it just it really felt tacked on and not not great i will i super agree with you because i read that and i was like uh and then i put the book down i came back to it later i picked up the first chapter right. and i was like oh Okay. It does not continue this way. Why? But let's just compare these sentences, right? Because it starts with the only light struggles from the few gas street lamps that remain unbroken. And then there's a, it's a conjunction, right? But then the second, but then the first chapter actually starts, I would very much like to know why my mother named me Enola. And I'm like, that's just a better start. Mm -hmm. If it had started there, 
it would have been better. It would have been like, oh, that's interesting. I would like to know that too, right? Just right from the beginning. It's very conversational. It introduces you right to the character and her voice. You know who you're with. One of my bigger issues with this book from, I guess, an adult perspective sort of, is that there is functionally no relationship building in it whatsoever. You can argue a little bit with Sherlock, but other than that, there's really none. Yeah, it's very, very small. Um, and one of the traps of writing in first person, because this book is from Enola's perspective in first person, is that the main relationship in a first person book, you have to be careful doesn't become between the protagonist and the reader. Mm -hmm. And that's functionally the only relationship that is in this book is the relationship between Enola and you. So you get very trapped in her perspective. You over sympathize with her. You see things only from her perspective. So you're like that dinner scene with her and her brothers where she shows up in her mom's oversized dress and they're treating her like a kid. And if you're reading this and you're a 12 year old girl, you are very invested in Enola at this point. You, you are feeling her embarrassment and you are angry at her brothers. You are all in on this. Except that from an adult perspective, you could have written this from Sherlock's and Mycroft's perspective, or even a third person omniscient narrator perspective quite easily with her looking like she's playing dress up and she doesn't know a thing and she is way overly naive and shouldn't have any control over her life because she looks ridiculous and everything they say to her ends up with her mouth gaping at them like a fish. Yeah. Right. So you are very, the, the book is designed to have you sympathize with, with Enola and her actions as though they make sense right from the start. So all, you have to take a step back at everything and think to yourself, does that actually make sense for this girl to be both, for example, this naive about the world and that embarrassed about her corset showing on a ship hole that she is trapped okay. in? No, no, I'm going to stop you there. I would all the way with you until here. I like the fact that she is self-aware enough about the stupidity of the restraints and the constraints being pushed on her because of her gender, but also such a product of her upbringing. Of her upbringing. She cannot even say the words to like the servant guy and like mm -hmm. she's horrified, but then she knows how to to turn that around because she knows if she starts talking about this thing, he'll be so embarrassed that he'll, oh my God, we just have to get out of this conversation, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I liked that little bit. And, and I wish that they had done more of that in the movie because they didn't really have that in the movie as right. much. And I, that was, that was, you know, one of the things I liked about the book. I, I will say your thing about her, it's all from her perspective and her relationship with the reader, I think is a really good point. But I found frustrating towards the end is that she would make these little aside comments. She'd be like, mm. I didn't need that. Or so I thought. And then it's right. never like resolved. And I think obviously that was Nancy Springer's way of being like, give me a book deal so I can write more books. Oh, right. you're so right. I'd completely forgotten that section because she lost one or had taken from her one of the important things that her mother had left for her the ciphers I think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she was like a, you know and I would never see it again or so I thought right and yeah 
it was the last time I would see Sherlock for several, you know, there was like three different times, I think, right. where it was like clearly future tense and Nola telling us information to give us a feeling, you know, and, right. then, and I think the feeling is, oh, I better keep reading, not, mm-hmm. oh, I'm relieved or whatever. I don't know. So yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. this book, not written great. I super, yes. But, but there were things about it that so I liked. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about the Mary Sue element. Mm-hmm. in the movie and I brought I wrote that down too she is a Mary Sue she is and there's debate about how much that is and is not acceptable to do particularly for the young adult genre aimed at girls that are you know growing and spreading their wings and discovering their identity and they want role models that they can aspire to be right one one of the other things I found a little annoying about her both in the movie and in the book was there was an element of not like other girls to it. Yes. Right? Agreed. And I think that's not a very good message to send to young women in their books. We should be encouraging role models and idols and, you know, this is what you want to be without making it a not like other girls situation, right? More of a, here are examples of what empowered females look like if that's what you want to be. (laughs) Okay, I'm just watching something yesterday, the day before, I was watching it, like, I think with my kid and where a woman was saying women are, are, competition with each other that's just the way it always is you know from the beginning of time like we compete blah 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 and like oh my god what was it because I remember being like horrified that they were saying that I don't know yes but you're right that that pervasive attitude of, of pitting women against each other as competition and and also like the the stupid ugly trope of it's it's what it's called, and I this is a phrase I just learned like during mm-hmm. quarantine a couple months ago is the pick me. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. the pick me because I'm not like other girls. I will cater to your every right. need, oh man, you know. And right. so like there's this great Facebook group um, that I'm a part of. It's called the Pick Me Signal has been lit. We can only hope the mail <laughs> approval arrives soon. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> so yes, there, yeah, there's so- bits of the right. All right, so. Going back to the the book, because I want to fully discuss the book first before I switch Mm -hmm, over mm -hmm. to the movie. I think that's fair. There are two two major plot devices that annoy me a lot in general. And she commits both sins (laughs) in this book. So the first is a plot relying on sheer coincidence. Yes. Boo! That bothers me hugely. And I think... The way they handled it in the movie was a little better because it was a it was coincidental running into the Marquis mystery, regardless mm. of whether you run into it in the book or the mm-hmm. movie. It's coincidental. Mm. Now, most mysteries have an element of coincidence to them, right? A lot of like, if you look at them, like the Poirot books, a lot of them happen because he's vacationing someplace or just happens to be on that train, right? So I can forgive that within the genre. But when it happens at the 50% mark, you're already invested in the ongoing story. And now we're going to take a, a, like, it's like a U-turn. We're going to go right around and she's going to go straight to the Marquis's grounds for no reason other than a hunch. 
She's right? compelled. compelled. Compelled to do it. And then she's dumb enough. This is my other plot point that drives me crazy. The other the other major plot device I hate is a, a plot relying on a on carelessness or foolish actions on the part of the protagonist to make it work. It drives me nuts when it is a character flaw. Someone loses their temper at a time where clearly they should not lose their temper. And, you know, right. But in this one, it's she just gives her name to the gate person without even thinking. Like she's already on the run. And she and he's like, what's your name? Enola Holmes. Oh shit. <laughs> okay. But see, that was believable to me. That was like she's trying so hard to act like this adult to be like, you know, and she's like thought something through. I'll dress like a widow because then I can wail a veil. I'll dress uh-huh. like a widow because people are afraid of death and no one will want right. to talk to me. Like she's got like this figured out and then she's like basically she's all proud of herself and her hubris so she stops thinking for a minute and someone's like what's your name she's like Hello, Holmes it's like how many times Leah have you been asked a question that if it was written down at 30 seconds you would say why the fuck do you want to know but right. like when you're just asked a question we just sometimes we just answer and then we're like oops like I hate I, that the, I accept yeah. that with the caveat that if I was on the run, I think the one thing I would have been doing the entire time would have been practicing giving my new name. Yes. <laughs> she had all those hours of bicycling and she's not sitting there the whole time. My name is blah, 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 blah. my name is blah, blah, blah. my name. Right? I can't doing the math name. in your head. I'm, you know, 18 right. years old, which means I was born in this year, which means that I was alive during this historical event. Just in case <laughs> one asks. Yes. No, you and I are a lot more manipulative than 14 year old Anola, who's not good at lying. And in fairness, I was a very manipulative 14 year old. I was. Shocker. Yeah. I was not. I am pure. To this day, I never lie. I'm not sure. I believe you. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, okay. it's so, so it's, basically um, what I'm getting is you're forgiving a lot of the things that I see as flaws because she's 14 and innocent. And the thing that annoys me is that she is portrayed as overly innocent. Mm in I, I suppose or naive and that the the while simultaneously being presented as very smart and intuitive and the combination of very smart and intuitive with these kind of mistakes bothers me that's that's fair you're allowed to be bothered now i'll let you talk no no <laughs> things you love about the book <laughs> no i and i agree with you i mean she is super naive but what I feel like what we, we're kind of told without being spelled out is that she's naive because she has been so sheltered. Mm-hmm. But if she had been given the tools like her brothers were, she mm-hmm. would have excelled. And they did mm-hmm. that in the movie. So I don't want to like jump into the movie, but definitely sure. in the book, it felt like it was just another way of showing us the disservice that her mother had done her by not... Right educating her in a different way and and preparing her and like giving her some worldly knowledge so but also also let's not forget that in england in this time aristocracy young ladies were not supposed to be worldly i mean that's a lot of the culture right there was Mm -hmm. that she shouldn't know anything so if she happened to know something like how would she know how would she know so again like the conventions of the the genre the time the place the thing the age Mm -hmm. mainly okay so I, I really liked how Sherlock in the book is so, so, so 
freaking misogynistic and dismissive yes. of the abilities of women um, because he makes such a good foil because every time he's like, women are stupid, he's literally dealing with a woman who has just outsmarted him like every single time. And it is awesome to watch. So I liked that they, they tamed that down in the movie for, I think obvious reasons, we'll talk about that in a minute. I love how that she's smarter than she thinks she is. Like I said, like she makes a list at one point about what she's got going for her and totally undermines herself. And at the end, when she makes that same list, she's yeah. like, actually, I'm kind of cool. Like I do know things yeah. and I can do things. So I liked that. That's like a growing and changing. I'm not a huge fan of her figuring out how the boy's hiding spot. It was super super far-fetched to me not just that i went to the house because i was compelled to but then mm. like actually finding his tree why would she even think that he wasn't kidnapped like what possible reason and then she's like well in his picture he's all dressed up but his jaw is a little bit hard for a 12 year old and i'm like mm -hmm. he had to sit still for this picture right like <laughs> right my jaw might be hard too i don't know so that was dumb i really did not like the hey i'll do this fighting thing professionally because it's like very much like what a 14 year old girl might do though like hey i've just heard of this thing that's totally my calling in life i am going to totally do it and i i'm gonna go off with no plan i get that but also it was really it was really weird i have never heard of this before but now that i've heard of it this is my life's calling and i'm like exactly and, and the other thing that annoyed me about it is it almost glorifies running away and and just doing your own thing and it'll all work out follow your bliss at 14 when the reality was would have been much closer to that experience of the slums in london that mm -hmm. it is scary out there for a woman on her own particularly at that point in history with no education with no experience of the world and most of the historical novels make a big point of that with young women that your options were if you were from the gentried class and you didn't marry you could I guess join a convent if you were Catholic, which none of them were at that point. You could become a governess yourself or a teacher in a in a girls' school, or you were basically going to be a maid, unless you happened to be good enough at sewing to become a dressmaker. It was not the greatest set of options, and women, woman detective, which okay, I'll I'll give you this. I sort of, and I don't know if this is intentional on the part of the author, but I will give her credit for it assuming that it's intentional um is part there's there's sort of in that genre the victorian genre of um writing uh, there's an awful lot of paranormal detective females in that genre of fiction it's sort of a thing there's you know talk to the ghosts and seances and and well, you know us women are just closer to the spiritual world right, right? Yeah. and a lot of this was because of vaginas I think kind of in the 90s, this was sort of a thing. I just remember reading a lot of them. So this came along not too far after in the early 2000s, right? Mid. So it, so I kind of liked that subversion of that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use logic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the first female logician. And <laughs> I, I'm going to give her that one and assume it was an intentional undermining of the genre tropes yeah i liked too that like she 
understood that she could change you know, by, by putting on the costume of a widow that she could mm-hmm. go undetected and like hiding things in her clothes and stuff but she didn't think that anybody else would have ever had the same idea <laughs> right. about the you know the cutter also dressing <laughs> like a woman to to take advantage of people which yes. again goes into that naivety but was actually I thought like kind of funny that she just it didn't even like occur to her until she had like drawn the pictures and like figured out that it was the same face and and blah 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 but I wonder just from a purely historical curiosity perspective which would have been more scandalous a woman dressing up as a boy or a man dressing up as a woman in that day and age also interesting to note she never dresses as a boy right in the book in the book she deliberately doesn't because uh-huh. she knows they will track her that way yeah like that that's way too dangerous yeah right and that's the first thing she does in the movie yeah exactly because her first costume is a boy it's a boy and and a later one too yeah she does it multiple times because she can like go undetected or whatever yeah i thought that was very interesting it was like that was way too fearful and again i feel like that is like okay i can't gender bend in the book it was not a thing so I'm going to use the tools that I do have, like the crazy bustle and the corset and the thing to hide my shit, to carry my luggage. She's carrying her luggage in her clothing, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, yes, I just, and okay, a little bit of weird connection here, but we know people, you and I both know people, and there is a thing where if you're fleeing from, let's say, an abusive relationship, you wear yes. multiple clothing, right? You yeah. wear all yeah. your clothes, and then you leave. You just walk out of the house carrying nothing out of the norm yep. um, so that you don't arise suspicion. So this is a thing that women do and that we know is a thing that happens. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was that was good. Okay, so let's see here. Um, I have a question for you about sure. the book. So she leaves, right? She's running away. She comes across some Romani people on the road. She waves, they wave, blah, blah, blah. She's on her bike. Her mother went off and joined the Romani. Is her mom part of that group? Like, do you think that the Romani, like, that her mom met up with, like, hung around to kind of, like, watch and see what happened? And her mom was, like, kind of waiting to see if she would actually, like, leave? Because I thought. That's a good point. Yeah? Yeah, that is a good point. I don't want to give, you know, weird credit if it's not there on purpose. Like, I wasn't sure if the Romani were introduced at that point, just so that we already knew that they existed Mm -hmm. so that at the end it wouldn't be like, oh, who are these? Or if that was like intentional, I'd like to say that it read that it's intentional, that her mom was like there. And that at some point in the series, when she meets up with her mom, her mom can say something nice. Like I stuck around to make sure you were okay from afar, because otherwise this mom is a awful Oh, I hate the mom. Okay. I hate, I hate her so much in the book and I loved her so much in the movie. It was hard for me. Now I also love Helena Barnum Carter. I yeah, yeah, yeah. That. There are elements in the movie I didn't like about her mom, but. Okay, okay, fair. For yes. the relationship between her and Enola, mm-hmm. I thought was really sweet. Her mom doing everything she could to prepare her. Yes, but in the book, sticking to the book, in the book, a total trash fire person, total trash fire person. Now, I will say one of the other things that annoys me in books is when I think an author is setting something up in a really clever way and then they just don't 
don't and it's not actually going to go that way and I'm like that is a complete missed opportunity and I can't believe no one in your reader group thought that that was a missed opportunity and no and your editor didn't point this out or anything and in this case what what struck me as a missed opportunity was her mom is described as, as having her at 50 years old and it's scandalous right like very scandalous that she had her at 50 and I'm like okay why is this scandalous that her mom was having sex at 50 within her marriage? That's just weird to me. Like late in life babies are a thing. She also takes the time to explain that Anola understood about pregnancy because the village women would occasionally just disappear into their house for several months and reappear with a baby, right? That's what they did. They went into their house and no one saw them and then they emerged with a new baby. Yay. And I'm looking, reading it and I'm like, okay, this is interesting to me because I know there are certain sort of Holmes reboots that include an older sister for the brothers. And the older sister went insane and had to be institutionalized, basically. And I was like, maybe it's not the mom's baby. Maybe it's the older, maybe they're, she's setting it up for them to have an older sister. Then the baby was an out of wedlock pregnancy and the parents hid it and claimed it as their own because that's a thing that happened back in the day. It's a thing that happened way, way up through like the 70s of last last century you know it's that that families would do that the parents would claim the a grandchild as their own to give it legitimacy and to save their daughter's reputation and i thought if that's where they're going that would kind of make more sense about the mom's behavior and and detachment from Enola and anger at the entire situation but that's not where they're going because i read ahead because i read the the, the wikis i'm like i have to know I'm not going to read all of these books like you, but I have to know <laughs> if they're going to do something like that, if we get a good reason. But it doesn't look like we do from what I read ahead. It looks like it's just her mom was extremely depressed and angry about her situation in life, being reliant on Mycroft and the patriarchy and... And decided to take it out on Anola. Yeah. And she just left. It's so... It's so crappy. And like, yeah. yeah, she left her money behind. But what did she really expect? Did she expect Enola to like go off and start a life? At 14. What did she expect Enola to do with that money? That's the yeah. question. Because either like she expected her to go do what Enola did, live your own life with money, but she didn't prepare her at all. So she's shitty. Or she expected her to... I don't know. Like, what was the point? I don't understand this mother's. Like, they gave her a reason in the movie. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the book, it was just awful. The mom was so, yeah. and and Enola was just so sad. I don't think anybody ever said this in the book. They did say in the movie, like, why are you trying to find somebody who clearly doesn't want to be with you? Yeah, of course it sucks. They really do. But that's not worth abandoning your child, your 14-year-old mm -hmm. child. And knowing that Mycroft is going to show up and then what is he going to put her in finishing school? And so like, I just, yeah, no, man, it's an unforgivable sin. And I, I think that it's like, it's like we, we talked before, I think off mic um, last time about how a lot of genre books start off with everybody in the village died except for this person, you know? And it's like, okay, that's part of this genre. I get it, but I don't like it and I don't have to like it. So I feel like that was just the convention to like start the story going, but also to kind of get the mom out of the way. And let's, let's be clear. This is not just this book or just this genre, but like 
think of all like the Disney shows in the nineties or whatever, where it's all about the kids and the parents are just like, not there. Right. You know, Oh, my parents are gone or I don't have parents. I live with my uncle or whatever. Like you don't have this parental figure, even, you know, my, one of my personal favorite shows of all time, Buffy the Vampire says she's got a mom who's kind of sometimes there, sometimes there, and then dies, right? Like we, we kill off parents or we remove them in some way, because if you're having a story about coming of age or becoming your own person, there's more drama if you have to do that without social support, right. which blows, by the way, can we just have some good parents, parents who don't die? <laughs> um, yeah, it's... It's a it's a rough thing to handle because on the one hand there are children that have genuinely awful parents, mm-hmm. and to depict every parent as amazing is a disservice <laughs> to those children, right? Some kids just do have parents that abandon them. Maybe this book is aimed at them because I know the author had a, had a hard childhood and a hard relationship with her own mother, so mm-hmm. a lot of this okay. draws from that. At the same time. I don't know. I also don't like feeding the prepubescent girl mentality because I feel like like you were right that this is more 11, 12 year olds are going to be reading mm-hmm. this dra- this book, even though the protagonist is 14. Kids tend to gravitate to books slightly older than them. You know, mm-hmm. or the protagonist mm-hmm. slightly older. I don't I don't necessarily like feeding that my mom is awful, you know, and and yeah. hates me and neglects me attitude that that every kid has for a while that that's just it's it's like they don't understand me they don't love me and here's a protagonist whose mom really doesn't understand her and really doesn't love her maybe that's the way though it's i'm in fifth grade and i hate my mom because she makes me brush my hair and brush my teeth and make my bed and blah 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 and i read this book and i'm like well this mom fucking abandoned her right she didn't prepare her at all except that then nola's like oh here i am in london with my two personas and all my money so right uh yeah, it's okay to have shitty parents if you have money. It's okay to like be on your own if if you have money. Like life is hard, but right. here's a whole bunch of money. So like the money is her privilege. And I do like the fact that she's using her privilege for good at the end. Like she is helping people, the poor people, you know, she's the the mm-hmm. mute sister or whatever. That's nice because I feel like she had this very insular, whatever. She was very protected from the world, right? Mm-hmm. And she didn't know about the poverty and about the things. But once she became aware of it, she does something to help it. That's yes. cool. That's admirable. We don't we don't really have that in the movie. But what we do have in the movie is all the other stuff. So let's talk about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, just the book very briefly before we move on to the movie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. One of the other things that I thought was ju- just right from the beginning is she uses period words that for a young adult novel you need to explain a little bit more (laughs) which is funny because i just went on she over explains and then she (laughs) needs to do more explanation but it's it's funny i almost feel like what happened was her readers made like google notes you need to explain this explain this and then when that happened you'd get a paragraph of explanation wherever her reader her her uh, proofreaders said this you need to explain so then you'd get a paragraph about the bicycle you know this (laughs) and 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 a paragraph about this and a paragraph about that but there are some period words like a handsome carriage if I'd read that, I mean, just read that as a 12-year-old, I would have assumed she'd misspelled handsome, <laughs> as in a person is handsome. 
And she didn't put a hyphen indicating it was a, a thing, you know, like a handsome carriage, that kind, like a type of carriage. Mm-hmm. She didn't just say, I hired a handsome. It was a handsome carriage, which it's, it, and there were a few of those sprinkled through. I just use that as, as an example, but there were a few of those period words sprinkled through that if you didn't have knowledge, prior knowledge of the genre and period, and this is a young adult novel, so this would probably be their first or second introduction to the period genre, right. you wouldn't get and would be confusing and weird. And that was in the weird, confusing intro, intro section too, which makes it even more extra. But just those kinds of things make me think this wasn't particularly well edited necessarily like it's not it's not not the writer automatically that needs to think of that stuff but I feel like whoever did her editing did her a disservice with not pointing those things out so yeah all right the movie tell me all the things that annoyed you about the movie (laughs) okay well it was it was a mix okay because I didn't I didn't hate the movie did you Um, read the book first or watch the movie I read the book first. I always do. I always read the books first and then I watch the movie. So I just, I feel like since that's how they were created, that's like, because sure. the movie is an adaptation of the book. So that's, that's how my, fair. That's how my fair. process works. Okay. So some notes about the movie. I did not hate, hate, hate the movie. I just got frustrated with the movie and probably because my expectations were high because I enjoyed the book, right? Okay. Like the book has its issues for sure, but I found it fluffy and light and a fast read and kind of sweet and charming. And I was like, oh, that was fun. And then I saw the previews for the movie and I was like, oh, this looks like it's gonna be sweet and charming and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then then there were frustrating things. Okay, first of all, I will say Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things is adorable and awesome. Love her, love her. This Mm -hmm. has no reflection on her at all. I actually loved all the actors. I thought pretty much everyone did a spot on good job. I think the boy that played Tewksbury is going to be like a thing in a couple years, maybe even not a couple years. He's so cute. Yeah, he and is. Henry cute. Cavill is already a thing. And yeah. Yeah. And Helena Bonham Carter is amazing. amazing. And the, ga- the lady that played the headmistress. Oh, yeah. I thought she actually brought a lot of nuance to the role. So yeah, I yes. liked the actors. Yeah. The movie was very well made right? Yes. I liked its little animation and its little like title cards and the expositional, you know, visuals. I liked the editing. I thought the editing was great. Mm-hmm. You know, things clipping back and forth. I loved the acting. I liked the set pieces, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But there's a few things I didn't like. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, first off, I did like also <laughs> that they aged everybody up and she's 16 and Tewksbury was about to yeah. become a Lord. I don't know what age you become a Lord, but it's obviously like 18 maybe 20 maybe 16 I don't know but it's older they're in the same age range right he's not a 12 year old boy that she as a 14 year old girl is protecting right he's her age if not a little bit older Mm -hmm. and so it's cute that she's still protecting him but also it made sense for their little romance to happen because you know yeah it did the I, I I did have a moment of did you have to put a romance but they handled it in such a cute way yeah and and she clearly didn't want to be romantic she was it was like against her better judgment she's kind of falling for him which i like and they never actually like 
really got into it it was you know it could very easily go that way in the next movie or whatever but it could also just be like that they're friends they do these little in the movie they do these little asides to the camera where she looks right at the viewer and connects with the viewer right and Mm -hmm. and says stuff to you in the movie and one of those bits is like right after Tewksbury is has demonstrated his knowledge of plants and that he can feed them and she just gives this sort of little smile to the camera and I wrote down "Ooh, she likes his brain because she spent (laughs) the whole time like you're too pretty you're too right and then it's like "Ooh, he's smart he knows how to feed me I like a man who can feed me which funny Um, enough is exactly what happened to me with Henry Cavill because I was like yeah he's pretty but I don't know and then I watched his his Witcher review where he reveals he actually read the books first and which is why he really wanted the part and I was like oh there's substance (laughs) has anything to do with the movie just pointing out some girls like brain and I like the the suggestion that teenage girls should like the brain first (laughs) yes for sure I did also like that at one point Mycroft is like oh she likes him well she should just marry him that would solve everybody's problems it's like which I mean, it's it's funny because he's the villain. So like everything he says, we know is wrong, right? So him saying marriage will fix all the problems of the world is is wrong. Also, yeah. So, okay. The breaking of the fourth wall, like you just referenced, that the, the director of this is Harry Bradbeer, who directed multiple episodes of Fleabag. I don't know if you've watched Fleabag, mm-hmm. but that has that same thing that breaking the wall and looking at the camera and, you know, mm-hmm. winky face, wiggle the eyebrow, etc. So it's kind of a thing. It worked, but I will tell you at a certain point, I was like, can we, can we not? Like, I, I feel like it got a little, it got a little overdone. Like, are you thinking specifically of the point where she's being waterboarded and she stops and winks at the reader, at the, at the viewer, like, I got this. Yeah. Before headbutting the guy. That was a moment. Also, like, when they're escaping from the finishing school and she has a whole thing, at, like, mm-hmm. there were just, there were parts of it where I was like, this doesn't, isn't necessary. I liked it at the beginning and I liked it when she's like, you should tell me thank you for saving your life. And he's like, what? And she was like, Ugh. thanks for what? And then she just gives the camera like this disgusted look, which is rolls her eyes great, at yeah. right yeah no so she she has a lot of good moments but I don't know it, for my for my personal enjoyment it got a little much I thought that they, they may have been trying to to kind of get in that first person perspective that you get in the book right mm-hmm. a little bit with those asides to the to the viewer um that like this is how we're gonna sort of make a connection some of them worked some of them didn't I think that a lot of them were carried off by just how adorable Millie was yes in a different actress's hands that just would not have worked so well at all right. and yet I have to become something new a lady yes you know like, and, and she just carries it with such charm the most charming part I mean I loved it when she was trying on the clothes in the dressmaker shop and she's playing with the stuff and talking to herself in the mirror it was very cute mm-hmm. and I, I mean so she's just she's just very very cute so she saves it she saves the whole that whole shtick from getting bad but it was still eh, okay i think this is my main complaint about the movie i think the movie tried to do too many things so part of the charm of the book for me was that it was simple and straightforward Mm. and one of the detractors of the book Mm. is that they added in that whole 
the thing with the marquee and it was like dumb and we didn't actually need it because nobody cared but the story itself was you know not just like simple like easy to follow but it was we, we very clearly know what was going on and there was not a lot of things which is fine I, sometimes you want a light fluffy book you don't need mm-hmm. twists and whatever and in the movie not only did we have a couple of twists and we had a couple of different layers but then we also had the politics of the day and then we had the thing over here with this and then we had Lestrand and like his personal thing and then we had the adults with their sexual attention and then we had like there right. was just uh, and then we have the tea room which is also a dojo and then we have women's liberation and then we have civil disobedience mm-hmm. I mean, it was like oh my god tone it down there's so much i wanted to like this movie i really did for the first half i actually really did i like forgave the silliness it's part of the charm but eventually everybody just got annoying to me <laughs> i like i liked the voiceover and the animation at the first half and then it just got overplayed there was more mom in the movie loved the mom there was also more Sherlock and Mycroft. So it wasn't even Enola's story anymore. Cause like we had all these scenes where she wasn't even in it, which mm-hmm. on the one hand, like you said, it makes the relationships between other characters are happening. Cause we're not mm-hmm. just getting first person. But at the other hand, I'm like, can we have a story about a girl doing stuff where we're not going to have to also tell other people's stories too? It would have been nice mm-hmm. for it just to be her story. And, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out, did they do that because Sherlock Holmes is such a thing that that's like the bringer in of audience. Oh, it's a Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. So we have mm-hmm. to make sure we have enough Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. for the Sherlock Holmes fans, because honestly, I don't really think we, we need it. We could have gotten a lot of that in right. other ways. And I just felt like it was like, but Enola is who we're here for. The movie's called Enola mm-hmm. Holmes. And I don't really care about the brothers' relationships with each other because that's not what this movie's about. Otherwise, the movie could be called right. something like the missing sister, mother, bear, you know, Marquis, whatever. The, the brothers' relationship with each other should matter only as far as it affects their relationship with Enola, right? Because mm-hmm. everything else is irrelevant to the story you're telling or the main character you're following. Mm-hmm. So if you want to show a pattern of familial disinterest and separateness and and all that, go ahead. So, right, so the movie improves her relationship with her mother almost at the expense of her relationship with her brothers. Um, in the book, one of the few bits of kind of family relationship building we get is her realization that her brothers stayed away because her mom told them to. Yeah. They had a huge fight about the estate after her father's death, their father's death. And um, and their mother ordered them never to set foot while she was still alive. And Enola internalized right. that as they were ashamed because I of the shameful extra child down the road. And so, yeah, again, fuck you, mom. But also like her realization yeah. of that. It's like, okay, they don't hate me. They don't know me. Exactly. And they, so there, so there's this weird muddying of the of the relationships. Because then um, in the movie, we have Sherlock who's like, oh, yes, I love, love you. I care about you. I blah, blah, blah. But dude, you didn't ever call or write. And like, she's like, you didn't visit. Mother yes. wouldn't let me. Well, you didn't write. Would you have wanted my letters? Okay, dude, no, no, no. That is gaslighting exactly. bad behavior right there. And she, I liked that she actually called him out on that. She was like, I've saved every one of your, of every article about you, 
every one of your cases. Like, yes, it was her basically saying, yes, damn it, I would want your letters. What the hell? You're my older brother. And mom was absent from my life, basically. She would just go out on the moors and paint and ignore me. And which wasn't so much in the movie. I mean, they fixed that in the movie where she had a great life yeah she loved her childhood it was wild and free and she thought their estate was beautiful because she did in the book too which <laughs> was cute yes it was a prettyish sort of little wilderness pride and prejudice quote except it's their entire yard <laughs> is a prettyish sort of little wilderness <laughs> right um but that yeah the the there's some stuff like it like the movie implies that Mycroft was paying for their house out of his own pocket out of his salary government salary which was not the case Mm -hmm. they had an estate that with a lot of property that they rented out which was typical for those old gentry estates so the so the house was self-supporting and the and their mother felt that she deserved to have control over those finances and how the house was run. Mycroft just put his foot down and was like, no, this is my estate and all that. He also in the movie had this weird line that said, I told her, I, I, I allowed her to remain at the, at the estate to, to raise Enola until she was 16. Yes. So Enola had turned 16 and the mom immediately took off. Like that was the, the agreed upon cutoff at a point. And I'm like, that's not accurate. Back in the day, it was expected that the head of the family, the the titled, you know, the one that holds the title and the estate, takes care of the other family members. So it wasn't that he would have allowed her to stay there. I mean, it would have looked horrible on him if he hadn't. But that's the sort of nuance that you can get in a book, right? Because she gives that explanation in the book that they were expected to stay there um but they she they don't in the movie and i think it's that you just don't have time so you cut these corners that's not necessarily fair to the characters or the plot well and so then that's frustrating because like you said they made the mother relationship so much better in the movie but they really then they also try to make her relationship with sherlock so much better in the movie mm-hmm. and it's like okay but that's not that's not really fair right I don't know it, it just it mm-hmm. felt and then by making him care about her randomly and le- and only because she's also smart it really thank felt you to me. I was about to point that out that that it's only when he realizes she's clever that he starts paying any attention to mm-hmm. her at all now we have to bring in the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle because they have continued, and they brought a lawsuit against the movie and the writer this last, just recently, yes, which is what they've done to every single um, production, basically, about Sherlock Holmes, because not everything is yet in the public domain. There's only a certain percentage of the Sherlock Holmes books or stories are in the public domain. And one of the major cutoffs that they argue is that the books that show Sherlock as more human and kind don't happen until later in the Sherlock canon and are not in the public domain yet. So if anyone wants to use Sherlock Holmes as a character now, they need they are supposed to portray him as 
very, very cold and depressed and, and cut off emotionally. And if you don't, they will sue you. So I think in fairness, we need to address that element when, when analyzing any Sherlock Holmes character in modern literature, because it does, it does affect it. <laughs> that is the weirdest flex I have ever heard in my entire life. Isn't it? It's very weird. It is very weird. But if you um, if you don't want to pay them royalties <laughs> and get their and get their approval, yeah, you have to portray him that way specifically. And yes, they are being sued about that right okay, now. Okay, so yes, in the book he is much colder. In the movie he yes. is much more he's much more warmer. No, he is warmer mm-hmm. in the book. It's mm-hmm. much warmer in the book. That's fascinating. Did not know that. It makes me wonder about God. What was it, Lori? I want to say Laurie King. Is that right? The Beekeeper's Apprentice. There was a whole series where Sherlock had a girlfriend who was also like a lady detective and they, they right. like solved crimes together and stuff. And she was much younger than him. Which is weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I read them when I was a teenager, so I don't really remember very well, but interesting. Huh? No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating element. One that kind of you, you have to keep in mind when reviewing Sherlock Holmes stuff and to see which ones have actually taken the time to pay the estate what they require. Basically, mafia here. <laughs> it's just a weird line. And I, and I can't remember what caused it, whether there was like one lawsuit where that was the defining element that made them win or what happened. But that's what they've been suing thing productions on for years now well, we'll have to put some some links to that in the show notes for sure so yeah, yeah. thank you for that yeah um, so and I did find him much more warm in the film mm-hmm. I also liked that every time he he kind of said something to Enola she was paying attention to it and would use it. And they kind of did that, I think, in both the book and and the movie a little bit, but more in the film just because they talked more in the film, right? But I liked her um, getting him back a couple times. You know, there there was one line, like, he said, you're being emotional. It's it's understandable, but unnecessary. And she turns that back on him. Mm -hmm. and, And she does a couple of those in the film. She takes his advice about dangling your feet in the water to attract the sharks. I like Tewksbury's response when she said that back to him was, but why would you want to attract the sharks? And she was like, oh, good point. (laughs) I didn't really consider that. But she's really paying attention to to Sherlock. She, and, and trying to emulate him. And I think she would have been like just really unfortunate thing about the entire thing is that he didn't just make her his apprentice (laughs) because she could, he could have, well, maybe not with Mycroft being in charge of her. Right. Well, and like, we don't get that in the book. In the book, she's like, she's running away from both of them. Yeah. He's kind of not as dickish, but he's still pretty dickish. And like, he's, there's no, we don't know what's going on behind it because we all, it's right. all Enola. There's an aside that she says about his personality that she didn't realize at the time, but she would come to understand that this was his melancholia talking. So we know that at some point they're going to, hook up and be friend not hook up you know what i mean be friends and like or she's gonna understand him something more deeply but that also actually one of the things that annoyed me in the book was the portrayal of sherlock holmes not being as smart 
or where is he actually is because he finds her list that she's made of questions about her mother's disappearance and one of them was why was she dressed so oddly and he questions her about it and she says she mentioned she was wearing a bustle and then he just lets it go and I'm like that is not what Sherlock right. Holmes would have done Sherlock Holmes would have been like okay that seems like a normal women's garment why was she that unusual for her to wear it? And then he would have gotten the whole explanation about how that didn't match the top hat, neither of which she normally wore and all that, right? And then he could have done his own deductive reasoning, but he just ignores her because she's a girl. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. That I don't think is consistent with Sherlock Holmes. I'm pretty sure Sherlock Holmes gender bended at one point too. I seem to remember there's a story sure he where he like yeah. dressed as a woman. So like, yeah, no, I, that yeah. I've really bumped on that too. I thought we were like diminishing Sherlock capacity so we can embellish hers which is lazy writing yes but yes in the in the movie he's definitely nicer and kinder and blah, 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 and he wants her to be his ward and mycroft's like no 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 until the mm-hmm. end when Mycroft's like you know what fine just just take her i am tired of this okay but we don't see any of that in the book so we don't know if that kind of is happening behind the scenes or not we also have in the movie we have way more lestrand lestrand we have way more Lestrade this whole thing where Mycroft's like there'll be quite a bit of money in it for you if you get her and then Lestrade's like okay and then he's got like a little bang down a door and like all of this stuff and Mm -hmm. I was like this is not the Lestrade that I remember from Sherlock okay this is one thing that made me go okay I don't know enough about Sherlock Holmes to fact check either movie or book but in the book Sherlock was the one with the professional connection to Lestrade yes right they were friends Mm -hmm. and 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 co-workers right and Lestrade is trying to get him to take an interest in the Tewksbury thing right yeah but in the movie it's Mycroft that has the professional connection with Lestrade Lestrade was a as they put it a sycophant to of Sherlock so he followed Sherlock he was obsessed with Sherlock in his cases but he hadn't actually met him until the movie where they he go they talk to each other at some point because at the in the last scene that Sherlock was like it was is nice meeting you again nice meeting you and so they obviously oh. they weren't the primary connection and I'm like well, wait, okay wait, wait. I don't know whether no, that doesn't work the, because the, because when she's like I'm you know Sherlock Holmes he's like I know Sherlock and then they had that whole pissing contest about what breakfast does he like and what does this like so Lestrade knows him I think that the meeting you again was just I think it was a a, a, it was an awkward thing in the movie yeah and it wasn't entirely clear fair it wasn't something I picked up the first time I watched the movie the second time through I was like wait a minute what okay because Mycroft Mycroft gets shaved with Lestrade they have that whole moment so the the major professional connection seems to be them because Lestrade was the one talking or Mycroft was the one talking to Lestrade of trying to get their sister back and but also not wanting to tell him that the sister was the widow like he lets that slip by accident yes, exactly I mean, it's all weird right because he, he doesn't want to let it be known that it's their sister that's missing because he didn't want to damage her reputation or his reputation or his more importantly right his reputation because it's all about how Enola reflects on Mycroft they also sort of underplayed how smart Mycroft is too mm-hmm. and the book did that also he was hardly in the book he was like the villain who's at the house who was like you're going to finishing school and then he was gone 
right? That was it. Yeah. And, and because again, it's just from Enola's point of view. So that's her only encounter really with Mycroft. Right. Whereas in the, in the movie where we have all of these conversations between Mycroft and Sherlock, and because the movie has decided that, hey, it's 2020 and social justice mm-hmm. is a thing, let's throw in women's liberation and yes, an important let's vote. let's talk and, about that. Let's talk oh. about the, the, the very now plot. Yeah. Right, uh, the element added with her mother so i think they definitely needed to fix the mother plot Mm -hmm. and they turned her into basically a suffragette the weird part about this is the bill that they're actually talking about was not a women's liberation bill it was a bill that i believe was opening up the um the vote to non-gentrified people in general yes Men, uh, women's men. liberation in England didn't actually happen until 1918. Yeah. So this is men. This is like more men voting, but somehow yes. she's super involved in it. I guess because baby step progress, like uh, rising tides lifts all boats. I don't know. It was right. very strange. I felt like it was like American audiences don't know this. We'll just put this in. She's right. a radical feminist jujitsu free-spirited woman fencer who who plays table tennis inside because she's so eccentric i know i'm sorry why wow just and then we're gonna write with on the wall just to piss people off i feel like i don't know yeah okay i got the impression that they simultaneously made her mother too competent and too mad Right, like, 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 not mad as an angry, but mad as an insane. Like, because she, the way they were living was bonkers. Mm-hmm. It was so off the grid in a very on the grid way because they're in this like you know ancestral home for their family but the the house is a wreck oh so and just and she's playing chess with the two-year-old Enola at one point and giving her this big-ass lecture about you will come to a point where you m- where you must make uh, a choice I, okay I love yes and then it's and then it, it cuts to Enola and she's like a toddler yeah. <laughs> she's just staring at her mom like, like can I eat these chess pieces can I put and then of course mouth? because it's from Enola's perspective this is supposed to be it's implied that Enola is remembering this from when she was what three uh-huh it must have it's happened very, a lot, is the point. I mean, point. it's funny, but it does that movie thing where it's like smoke and mirrors. Look over here, not over here, you right. know? Like, this, just just laugh at the joke. Don't think of the context. Well, and that's the thing. Like, in the, in the book, she doesn't find her mom, but her mom has gone off to live with the Romani. Okay. In the movie, her mom shows up. Her mom, you know, mm-hmm. has found Enola and is like... I had to leave you because I want to make the world better for you. So abandoning you and making you go off to finishing school, whatever. Okay. We've already talked about the stupidity of that, but also Mm -hmm. like now that you're here in London, we can't be together. You're totally cool with being on your own, right? You have some money from that reward. She doesn't even give her an address now to contact her. She wants her to still use that newspaper thing. And I'm sorry, what if she's in an emergency and on the run and she needs to go to you now? Yeah. Very selfish. Her mom, even in the in the movie, was selfish. And let's talk about them turning her mother into essentially a domestic terrorist. Right. And and everyone just kind of being 
okay with that yeah oh she's so eccentric and funny haha <laughs> did you not okay this is my this is my hypothesis that if the vote had gone the other way they were going to blow up the building yes and and from what it looked like to me the types of bombs that they were creating were like shrapnel bombs yeah the kind that explode and cause maximum damage to just people around and i'm like that's kind of a big deal they're not just doing destruction of property no. they're, they were gonna set this up like in the middle of a square with a lot of people i thought it was totally the house of lords like if the yeah, in an gone, age before antibiotics right. so they even gonna, if they live they might not live they were gonna <laughs> take it was like a suicide bomber thing is literally what it felt like like she was like right. I, I, if i can't do this i'm gonna take down a whole bunch of this blah 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 that's exactly the impression i got and why were the women so invested in common men getting the right to vote gentrified women that's her mom right, right. what i would i don't know i would have just been of the opinion that they would have been more concerned with noble women getting the right to vote themselves as well as because yeah. I know there's a lot of um, nuance in the original feminist communities like the African-American women in America that were part of the suffragette movement were upset at how women focused the white women were because to them they were more concerned with their husbands and sons not being lynched right right Legit, so there's a lot the of this like privileged white girl stuff going on mm -hmm. um so i guess sort of nice that they weren't doing the privileged white girl shtick in oh, this no year. because we have a black lady who's super on par with this right <laughs> okay, okay 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 that was one of my other points of the movie she so enola finds her old jiu-jitsu teacher and doesn't recognize her and the lady's like you don't remember me i was your first teacher and i'm like i'm sorry what noble white girl in england is going to not remember her black jiu-jitsu teacher but she's gonna remember that chess game she played when she was two she when she was three <laughs> yeah man like, that was not well thought out no, no, jack thorne you no. should have not put that line in there and, maybe and, maybe jack's like i didn't they added it <laughs> and and i feel like they wanted to have that thorough thing of like you can't do this one jujitsu move you can't do it you can't do it and then when it's important you do it and it's like you do it talk about cliche that bothered me way more than the mycroft snoring in the book to be honest <laughs> um because i was like the first time she couldn't do it i'm like oh countdown begins for when she'll do it when it's really important really important there we go uh yeah the the women in the tea room doing jujitsu i have no idea how historically accurate it is and please don't tell me because i want it to live in my head that this was a thing but also <laughs> yes, it's too. just like really again a black lady running a tea room and a jujitsu is was england that progressive in the victorian period and i just somehow don't know it maybe maybe england is in a lot of ways more progressive than the us when it comes to race relations but that seemed a little bit of a stretch and it made me feel mm -hmm. like they were like oh it's 2020 we want diversity put some black people in here give them some lines put put there's an asian lady at one point walking around like do this stuff like make it 
diverse and women empowerment mm -hmm. add social justice um what else what else what else what else what else uh, uh oh oh yes she can hold her own in a fist fight with a man who outweighs her by i don't know 75 pounds at least um yep. um um what else will appeal to white mothers of middle grade girls right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i felt very pandered to and i didn't <laughs> like it right Right. Because on paper, I like all of those things, but yes. I don't like being like, oh, here's the demographic. You like these things. Let's shoehorn them all into this thing where they're not necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both, both the book and the movie also had a um, another one of my least favorite tropes, which is the knocking someone unconscious or knock the main character unconscious only for them to wake up at the right moment. Um, bit the scene in the book where she gets knocked out before she's imprisoned on the boat I wrote is this the Hardy Boys what <laughs> year is this because it's such a done mystery trope knock the main character out and tie them up also yeah. no repercussions you don't have a headache you're not right. blurred vision you don't have a concussion like to actually knock somebody unconscious this is a thing that happens in books and yep. movies all the time to actually knock someone unconscious you have to do significant damage to them yes it's particularly not... for them to be out long enough for you to carry them down to the hull of a ship and tie them up and tie the them stuff. up thoroughly i did like the corset bit with her using the corset to get out of her bonds again the trappings the trapping of her femininity yes. saved her giving but her then there's a random rock yeah i was very confused why there was a rock and why she doesn't call rocks? it a rock she calls it something else but no she does i just looked it up because when you were doing the recap i was like wait a minute what was that because you're like or something so <laughs> rock or something i'm like wait what was it i looked up I'm like nope it was literally a rock okay yep Chekhov's rock sure and I think she covers it by using like the technical name of the ship or, or like like the ship part that they're in, like that would fix. Right. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> that was my hands. It's, a, it's on page 166. My hands, which seemed to know what to do better than I did, selected a large rock from the ballast, even as Squeaky cocked his leg to kick again. I'm like, what is a ballast? And does it usually have rocks in it? I don't know. Is this a thing that they just have well, in you can... ships? Yeah. Right? If the She's boat like, is a rockin'. Wait, no, that's a different thing. Um, I don't know, man. Ball ba ballast is a part of a ship. I, I, that's a word I at least know is a nautical right. word. But this is like when on Star Trek, when like the wall in the gets hit by phaser fire, and then like large chunks of concrete fall down, and there's rock dust. Yes. Yes, I'm really hoping that some you have some historian friend that's going to comment in the comments and be like, actually, that's totally normal for rock, for ballasts to have piles of rocks in them. They were used for this purpose. And then we and all of the readers of the podcast will be very educated on the fact. Yes, <laughs> my brother-in-law is a very nautical-minded sort of chap. I might message him just randomly today and be like, yo, Peter, do rocks normally hang out near ballasts? But this is another example of what I was talking about is using the historical terms without giving any explanation for them. And in granted, in that 
moment, it would have been really hard to get stop and give a brief explanation of why there was a pile of rocks in the ballast. But maybe a bit earlier, she could have been looking around instead of her hands just happening to find a rock in the ballast. She could have been preparing for what she was going to do when she finally broke her bonds or whatever. And you could have gotten that information. Now, in the movie, when she they jump off the train, because that's like basically the replacement here, um, and she times it so they jump before the train goes over a bridge so that bowler hat guy can't jump after them. That was smart. That was good. But after that, she doesn't really ever get the upper hand <laughs> on bowler hat. She just get lucks out. You know, um, he stabs her and her, her corset lives. He drowns her. She fakes drowning, which um, I'm sorry, but that is a very risky thing to pretend to drown. It like is. he, if he had just held her down there a couple more, like another, whoever knows. 10 seconds, yeah. It would have not been pretending. She also anymore. breathed out literally all of her air and then some before. Yeah. Did you get catch, catch how many bubbles? Probably the the drowning scene was, was our, probably my least favorite bit. Yeah, in the, I in the movie that and the fight at the end with the grandmother. Yeah, and- I will. I will say the grandma surprised me when she was like the uncle. I was like, okay, sure, you know, fine. Like I wasn't real invested. I was not trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I did not care why Bowler Hat Man was involved. But then she was like, it's the uncle, and I was like, cool, cool, cool. Okay. Then we show up and like they're getting shot at, and I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And then it's Bowler Hat. Okay, great. So we knew he was going to come back, right? Okay. Then he dies way fast let's talk about getting hit on the head right right and then after knocking her out for just long enough for her to wake up at the crucial second to save tewksbury from getting strangled seriously also very contrived but then grandma's the bad guy and i will tell you i didn't see it coming because earlier when grandma was like you're like my son he was like with this new thought and i thought she was saying go you with your new way of thinking mm-hmm. not, you're all stupid for your new way of thinking and honestly i was really distracted in that shot in the scene with her and the dowager because the camera angle is so bad it's like so looking bad. up her butt i was like that dress is making her ass huge anyways because that's because the of the bustle yeah and now you're gonna focus on it it was a very weird angle like weird like noticeably weird but okay fine so now grandma my mother who was very excited to watch the movie and watched it pretty much the second it came out because this is one of her favorite genres right um she said she saw the the grandma coming a mile away because of the way the grandmother was talking about their responsibility to the estate and tradition and and stuff so i um the first time i watched it when it first came out before you'd suggested doing this podcast i was not entirely sober when i watched it so i don't know if that was affecting my ability to see it coming or not (laughs) it was one of those i'm gonna have a glass or a bottle of wine when my kids are at grandma's house <laughs> and just watch this silly little period drama coming of age story. Nice. So, so yeah, I can't, I can't speak well to that. So I did watch the movie before reading ah, book, okay. in this case, just because I'd happened to have already seen it. I didn't even realize it was a book. Well, I, yeah. So I, I liked the fact that once it was like said, oh, it's the grandma, all the pieces fit. You're not, you don't feel like cheated. This is not psycho. Fuck you, psycho. Like where it was obviously like cheating happened um, to, to to make you doubt your own self. Okay. This was, that was good. 
and it made sense it was the grandma just that then he's like your day is over and she's like ah. i'm like this lady this this bitch right here leah she killed her son she tried to kill her grandson multiple times then hired someone then showed up to finish the job and literally shot her grandson but now she's going to be like yep oh well i guess I was like, no, man, this woman is going to haul off with some, with her walking stick and beam you in the head. You better tie her down. Like, right. I just, why are we not more afraid of crazy, scary grandma right now? Everyone, she's just like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I lost. Yes, that was unsatisfying and and has similar. Also, freaking Took's got the last line. No, no. Right. Your day is over. So one of the one of the things that does that that bothers me is they basically gave Enola a white knight complex and make it seem okay. So they give Enola a white knight complex. They make mm-hmm. her realize that her her calling in life is to find lost things and and help people. And yes, because she has because this, as soon as you do something once and you that do it is your well. Thing. Yeah, I made a turkey once, Leah. It was a really yummy turkey. I'm going to open up a fucking restaurant and make turkeys for everyone because I did it that one time. Right. Girl. Which is another thing that's problematic is teaching kids that they have to have a dream and a thing that defines them. Like, I know people that have, they're close to me that have struggled with this, like their entire adult lives, because they feel like just having a job and hobbies that they enjoy and a family isn't enough. We've raised a generation of kids that think they need to be amazing and, and they're, and find their thing and leave their mark on the world. And I'm like, just be happy just raise happy kids that do good in the world but don't feel pressured to be the catalyst you know like like we're all failing because we're not we're not the spokesperson for whatever and and like no we can just do good every day of our lives consistently and that's okay and there are some people that are gonna rise and be the stars that we all support but Mm -hmm. the bottom of the pyramid is as important as the top of the pyramid the top wouldn't exist without the foundation and and this spreading this idea to kids that you if you not have don't have a thing then you have to find your thing that you're not going to be successful or happy is bad and the white knight element is also bad it was bad when we did it with boys it's bad when we're putting doing it with girls but she had that line in there that i hated which was like uh, about tewksbury not being strong enough to fight this battle but she was so she could do it for him and and when the reality was he wasn't that dumb i mean he he was he was the one that put on that that armor piece that avoided getting him killed by his grandma's shotgun blast right she didn't it's like he's smart he's not and stupid she, she the grandma shoots him yes. he falls down anula not knowing about the piece of armor runs towards grandma and the gun and yes. thankfully the gun is now out of bullets but anula right. did not know that right because she didn't know anything about guns <laughs> Nope. Like, like if she'd known, if she'd known for sure that it was out of bullets, she wouldn't have 
stopped when the grandma pointed it at her. So clearly she didn't know that it was out of bullets and she was just behaving emotionally, which is understandable, but unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm with you. I hate the idea that like, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life because that's bullshit. People have to pick lettuce and clean toilets, right? Okay, can we just stop with that narrative? Because that is a lot of white privilege stupidity right there is what that is. Okay. Yes, you made it. You've made the point eloquently. I won't belabor the point. The other thing about the whites, you didn't say white savior complex, but I'm gonna, <laughs> you said savior complex, but it's the same thing. Like nobody can do this except for me, these poor, unfortunate people, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And um, no, because here's the thing in order to subvert the system or work against the system, sometimes you have to be within the system, right? So if you want to change mm-hmm. politics, you run for office. I'm looking at you, AOC, you're my hero. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nasreen Johnson, in case you're listening. My point is that you don't buck tradition completely, live outside and then hope yeah. that works for the rabble rebel rouser people like her mother. Mm-hmm. But Enola is not her mother. She's mm-hmm. not joining that women's group and doing domestic terrorism thankfully Mm -hmm. but she is going to ride around london in a child dress with her hair down so how can she possibly hope to help anybody no one's going Mm -hmm. to take her seriously i liked it so much better in the book where she's like okay i'm going to dress myself as a nun and give money to people who actually need it thank you Mm -hmm. and i'm going to dress myself like somebody's secretary and you know, do my own thing and do blah, blah, yes. blah, like within the ways that I can. Yes. That was a much more, even though I did not like the third person and now we're suddenly like back to looking in and it was weird. The writing of that last epilogue was very strange, but I liked, I liked the idea of the book epilogue yeah. so much better than the idea of the movie. And also the movie seemed to have like four different endings. Did that feel like that to you? Cause like yeah. the, the grandma thing. They, they were went- wrapping up the different the different storylines and then her mom comes and then she's outside and then also we had this thing with you know tooks at the thing and then we have sherlock and and like there was just too many endings it felt like the lord of the rings at the same time i felt like the the ending of the book was almost too abrupt Hmm. and the bit with her mom like oh yeah readers are gonna want some sort of closure on that guess i better throw in the little chrysanthemums reply (laughs) Yes. In the newspaper. The movie did take a little bit more time with each goodbye. And and in some ways they had to because you wanted the wrap up with Tewksbury because you wanted to know how the vote goes and you wanted mm-hmm. to know what their where their relationship stood. So they had to do something with that. No, I get it. It just it just it was like this. And it then was this, a and then lot. This. I did feel like the movie did a better job setting things up and knocking them down. Like it, it was, you could, you saw the threads, like the storyboarding was very good because you, they, you would set up the, the pre, you know, the, the foreshadowing and you would actually see it come to pass. Mm-hmm. Not so much in the book where possibly stuff would happen in later books, but I really don't like that technique that you, you'd mentioned of, you know, we would see this as, a, you know, later, you know, except it doesn't actually happen in this book. No, you, if you're going to do that, you need it to happen in the same book because readers are not going to remember three books from now that you said that those cards were going to come back. Right. <laughs> and this to- is not a book you're going to reread and reread and get something new every time. That's not this right. type of fiction. Right. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's the thing. At the end of the movie, I was like, we've ended. 
I'm okay. I don't yeah. need any more of this. At the end of the book, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. So I, I yeah. almost wish that they had made a mini series so they could have like maybe told all yeah. the stories or a few. So they could have like lengthened things out right. a little bit and had more of a buildup and it wouldn't have had to be so quick and fast and like jamming everything into one thing. But again, I say that having not read the rest of the series. So maybe these other books don't have anything to do with anything. But like if she does eventually mm -hmm. find her mom or she does eventually, you know, become Sherlock's apprentice or she does, you know what I mean? Whatever. Like I would have like, like, I like that idea. That sounds like fun. I do kind of want to see it, but also the movie ends in a way that I'm like, yeah, okay, we're done. Like it didn't. Right. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. I didn't actually, it, it, apparently a lot of people love this movie and a lot of people hated this movie. So we will see whether or not they make any more of these. The detective genre is a, is an interesting one because Unlike most genres, you don't see a lot of character development in the detective. Most detectives are sort of a fully formed, actualized person that knows themselves, knows their business, and they're going to get it done. But you don't, but yeah, with the, like all the big name detectives, they have their character flaws, but they don't tend to really improve on them much. And their relationships don't deepen much there's enough that the reader kind of feels like you're not just watching the same thing over and over and over and over again but certain detectives don't even show up for a good portion of their books like the <laughs> miss marple books sometimes miss marple wouldn't come in until like halfway through and you're like oh and when, when the people actually thought maybe we need some help i'll go talk to my friend over tea and just <laughs> invite her to our summer house you know so the, the mystery genre i have to give it a little bit of grace on the character development elements of Enola. And, and I actually felt like, okay, you did grow Enola a little bit and you did grow Sherlock a little bit. Like he realized, oh, maybe I was too hasty in judging her and there is more to her. But at the same time, what would have been wrong if she was just a normal teenage girl, Sherlock? You wouldn't have any interest in helping her. Yeah, you, her value isn't tied in just what, you know, how she can reflect upon you and also her brain, like, you know, that she's like you in some right. ways. It's, she should have inherent value just by being, so. <music> Leah, yeah. was this book and movie worth your time? If you were a 12-year-old girl, I would recommend the book. If you're not, no. If you like periods uh, movies and you want lighthearted, easy fun, sure, I'd watch the movie. For me personally, I thought the movie was worth my time and the book was not. Okay. Book is worth your time, I think, because it's fast and it's fun and it made me want to read more. Fast, it definitely was. <laughs> yes. So I, I mean, if you're interested in the genre or you're interested in middle school, obviously like those are things, but if this is like a thing or you're trying to find books for your child mm -hmm. who's an avid reader. Yes, it's definitely worth checking out at the very least. Okay, the movie though, I said, Ugh. ultimately it was fine. It was okay. If you haven't read the book, then you'll probably like the movie more, I think, because right. you won't be comparing. That is true. It wasn't great, even though it should have been. I think it could have been great, but it just somehow it just, it fell a little short for me. It made me roll my eyes. I think it tried to do too many things. But if your expectations are low, like really low, or maybe you're in middle grade, or maybe you're drunk like Leah was, or um, 
then sure. Then this is totally like, I, I think Jennifer would call it a Sunday afternoon matinee, put it on while you're doing something else in the house kind of movie. And I could see that. It's not how I watch movies. I tend to like want to just stare at them. And again, I think it might have been a fun mini series, but it, you know. If you prefer watching movies for the acting and the look more than necessarily the plot which i think kind of a lot of british mysteries fall into that category like i want to watch something that's in a pretty scenic village and has pretty clothes and where people talk in fun accents and And it has a happy ending right even if the mystery itself is sort of done oh my god you know what this is this is like like the Hallmark movie of <laughs> of Sherlock Holmes. This is like yes, it's the Har- Har- Hallmark version of Sherlock Holmes, but with really good acting. This yes. movie has excellent window dressing because the production values were high. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna get a movie that is visually very attractive, that that is edited well, that that is charming. That's the word I would use the most for this movie mm-hmm. is it is a charming movie. The actors yes. are fantastic. You're going to love the kids, even Tewksbury. You're, yeah. <laughs> I, I love her responses to Tewksbury. You're a nincompoop. <laughs> yes. And and Millie Bobby Brown is delightful. So, so cute. Yeah. I, charming. I would say she's delightful. The movie has a lot of charm. But again, if you're an old jaded misanthrope no i'm not a jaded misanthrope. but if you're if you're a little bit jaded or you're like uh, okay maybe not but yeah so there you go sound off let us know let us know if you've liked it let us know if you didn't like it let us know if you read the book or if you're going to read more books i ordered all the rest of the books i am excited for my daughter and i to read the books together at some point nice. a little bit a little bit down the road she's only eight but while talking to her about you know not like other girls and and mary sue's (laughs) well the mary sue is not as apparent in the book remember but yes definitely we talk about that stuff a lot and again i'm driving me crazy about what it was that we were watching where it was like women are always in competition with one another and i was like no 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 but i i cannot because it just it's like such a it wasn't like little fires everywhere or something was it no no it was something i was watching it with ella that's what makes it it weird like it might have been like some facebook video or something oh thank you so much for being here today yes it was fun this was super fun (laughs) i am so happy and i'm so glad that this like all works out and we can record and yeah let me know if you want to do another one this is this uh yes okay (laughs) i am actually really glad that you had the opposite opinion as me because i'm like excellent this will make it really a good thorough analysis that's not biased one direction so not to just like make it so you don't bother to listen to anything but jennifer and i did a christmas story and one of us loved it and one of us hated it and then we did the christmas story live the television musical version that came out in 2017 and we flipped and the person who loved it hate it and we so we had the same like and i i agree with you it is way more fun when there's like a difference of opinion it's it's otherwise it's just like two people ragging on something or two people (laughs) gushing whatevs anyways cat just freak out there (laughs) she like bit my wrist randomly because i wasn't petting her enough oh spanked they're so obnoxious i love them but what are you eating don't eat that. <laughs> Such a cat thing to do. 
the paperclip. Ugh.